KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, Flashpoint family. This is KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg. First up, I have to say thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the Flashpoint podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And then could you do me another favor and log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or wherever that you got this podcast and provide a review and rate this podcast. We need your reviews to take us to the top. Plus, I just want your feedback. Let's get back to the show. Thank you, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on climate change, and the issue is critical. There's strange changes in seasonality, when it gets hot and when it gets cold. So why is it political? Certain parties have certain interests, economic interests. Over 80% of Americans want us to invest. What's the real deal? And what are some of the plans to fix the problem? After spending two decades behind bars for a crime he did not commit, this is his first Father's Day as a free man. I'm still wrapping my head around it. I can't stop smiling. How he raised his son despite challenges and his future quest for change. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air Saturday evenings at 930 and Sunday mornings at 830. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app. The focus is climate change. It is real, and now it's an emergency. In recent days, fires have ravaged acres of California desert. In the Midwest, dozens of floods, and right here in the Philadelphia area, we saw tornadoes out of season. Now, scientists and economists estimate that countering climate change will cost trillions, but it could cost trillions more if we don't do something. Yet steps are slow to implement solutions. So what can be done to make environmental justice a top priority? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Nicole Carr. She's a member of the Sunrise Movement, a group of young people dedicated to stopping climate change. We also have Robert McKinstry. He's a climate change attorney. And Dr. Mark Hughes, a professor at the University of Penn, who's the founding faculty director of the Climate Center for Energy Policy. Finally, we have in the studio Philadelphia City Councilman at Large, Derek Green, who has worked on environmental policy issues here in the city of Philadelphia. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So, Professor, I want to start with you. We saw major storms recently in the region, and it's very unusual for this time of the year. Could you explain climate change and how it is having a real-world acute impact on us right now? Maybe the easiest way to make that point is that for decades— The scientists who study the Earth and its climate have been reluctant to attribute weather events to climate change. But in the last year or two, science has shown up for the public conversation about that. And there's an increasing body of evidence that says the hurricanes we see, the the strange changes in seasonality, when it gets hot and when it gets cold, the dryness – the extent of the heavy precipitation events, all of these kinds of changes that 
used to be called weather and used to be called un- unpredictable in any kind of big scientific sense are now solidly being associated with the science of climate change itself. And so the things that people can see and that feel strange to them are now considered full evidence just like any super complicated science about the changes that are going on around the world. So it's real. It's no more, you know, debate about this, although there well, seems well, to still be a debate. There's a debate for some people in D.C. I won't say any specific party or not. However, there has not been the same focus and energy. Uh, some of the policies and the, the statements that have been made historically based on scientific data, in fact, that show climate change is real. Um, unfortunately, the current administration uh, in D.C. has taken a different perspective. It's not even allowing some of the scientists, career scientists, to continue to make those type of statements because they have a different policy agenda. Yeah, and unfortunate. I've, I, I've heard that the that there's a lot going on in Washington when it comes to the issue of climate change, even changing the scope of certain studies uh, to try to make it look less pressing. So I want you to jump uh, I, in. Go, the, go ahead. Uh, I, I will say that there has been a, a concentrated misinformation campaign. In um, when, when I did my first uh, conference on on climate change when I was teaching at Penn State in 2002, I was going to do something about the science debate. And after I talked to three or four people, and they all said with you know great uh, uh, disdain, well, there is no real conflict in, in, in science, I realized that there wasn't. And But actually, there's a 1997 memo that was done by a public interest firm uh, retained by the American Petroleum Institute, which said, hey, the science is going to undermine our our business. Let's go out and retain people to basically lie to the public. It's very similar to the to the tobacco industry Mm. um, uh, uh, memo that that resulted in, in liability for the tobacco industry. Yeah, and Nicole, jump in here because young people are the ones who are really, they're feeling the brunt of it now, but will be in the prime of their lives when it really hits us hard. Yeah, yeah. I was actually an environmental science student um, in 2015 when the Exxon New News dropped, which was very similar to the tobacco industry that Exxon had known about the climate change crisis for decades and was funding this campaign to lie to the public. Um, And it was one of the major reasons why I, upon graduating, decided to go into advocacy instead of science because I needed to advocate for scientists to be listened to because there's no debate within the scientific community that this is a man-made crisis and that it's a crisis. Yeah, like I'm scared for my future that I'm not going to have a future planet to, to live on if we don't change the political will. So what are some of the ways we can start making a difference immediately? And I'll start with you, Professor. Yeah. Well, I think probably the most important thing we can do immediately is conversations like this one. The science is settled. The politics is not. And we have to take Mm. very seriously the fact that the politics is not settled on this. And part of the reason it's not settled is the breadth and depth of the conversation that we've been having publicly around this. And so getting the message over the lights to everyone in a fairly democratic democracy that we still have, a fairly functioning democracy that we have in the United States, passably functioning. That's the most important thing that we can do, absolutely, right now, is figuring out ways to broaden the conversation. And, and Councilman, I got to ask, why is something like climate change a political issue? Well, because I think there are certain parties that have certain interests, economic interests, who are trying to use miseducation and misinformation to make people Mm -hmm. think, well, that's just an issue of 
certain types, elites in a certain part of a, the country, that if you live in the heartland, if you live in the south, or you live in the Midwest, other parts of the country, you don't have to worry about that. That's just a an elite issue that they're trying to convince you. And it's unfortunate that people who are non-scientists who are trying to advocate and provide information regarding science. And so it's a, it's a real concern and challenge where everything is being used from miseducation information. We hear the word fake news. And so getting people to almost not believe what their eyes are telling them. Mm. I mean, we see the information and the, the tornadoes, the earthquakes, um, the rise in temperatures, the more severe weather, all of these are aspects um, to climate change. And we've got to change our behavior, just things as simply as recycling. And all these things are interconnected. But it's unfortunate that we have people that have specific financial interests who are using miseducation to get people to think this will not affect them when it will. And I got to ask you, Robert, because one of the things that I've seen now is lawsuits being filed. And it's becoming a way to stop people from because it's becoming acute for people like Nicole, for kids, for us. People can't breathe. Um, How what are some of the legal ways that folks can sort of bring this to a head using the courts specifically? uh, One of the mechanisms is one that I'm working on right now. I left uh, my law firm last March at the end of last March and put together a rulemaking petition to the. Pennsylvania Environmental Quality Board to establish an economy-wide greenhouse gas auction cap and trade program that will go to zero by 2052. We have to hit zero about by 2050 in order to avoid the worst effects. There are other mechanisms. There are um, there are lawsuits that can try to force action at the federal level as yeah. well. You could file a rulemaking petition to do a similar thing there. Some people right now, a number of cities are filing tort suits against some of the large energy companies. Mm. Um, I think that's probably a less effective way than trying to force regulatory action, although it where it, it does hit where the potential money is, but it can it'll be a very, very difficult lawsuit. You can also work at the local level. I mean a lot of a lot of municipalities um, yeah. can 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 do things. The, the mayor's office of sustainability yeah. uh, is working on, on, on those, but that's still going to be a, a minor. You, you need to really action at the state and federal level. Pencil, yeah. Pennsylvania is responsible for about one percent of the world's emissions. Yeah, yeah. And then you want to add something, and then I have a. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Go right ahead. Yeah, I just add one thing. You know, when we were setting up the mayor's office of sustainability and drafting the GreenWorks plan about ten years ago. You know, one of one of my most memorable lessons from that experience was uh, trying to go to a place like South Philadelphia and talk about street trees. And when I first show up, I'm talking about street trees, like you know, this kind of policy wonky guy who's talking about the tree canopy and local air quality and everything else. And there was very little support for extending the number of street trees in a neighborhood. And as soon as you turn it into, that's what I mean by getting it over the lights. As soon as you meet them where they are, they don't care about tree canopy. In fact, they don't like street trees because it breaks the sidewalk and somebody gets sued and it has leaves and somebody's got to clean up and it's not always the city showing up to do that. And so on. But what they really care about is flooded basements. And when they understand that street trees absorb water that's otherwise going to get into their basements, they become the Boom. strongest advocates Boom. for street trees you can imagine, right? Yeah. You've got to message this where and, people and, are. I, and I think this is the biggest problem with climate change is people don't 
understand how it impacts them right now today. Right. And so that is a big thing. But I'm going to switch gears because we're going to cram a lot in to the next 14 minutes. And so, Nicole, I want to switch gears a little bit to the Green New Deal. Yeah. Because I know you guys, and we're going to switch that and we'll talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit. I know you guys at the Sunrise Movement were big into the Green New Deal. What's your understanding of it? And why do you think there's been such split support on this issue? Sure. Well, the Green New Deal is a plan to massively mobilize uh, an investment of federal dollars into climate solutions. So under a Green New Deal, we will see a rapid transition away from fossil fuels. We will see a massive increase in the creation of jobs for millions of people, good union-paying jobs, um, to retrofit all of our buildings, to educate all of our youth. Um, to really invest in the next generation. And the last thing that we'll see under a Green New Deal is a commitment to justice for frontline communities that have been underserved historically by fossil fuel industries and executives. And there's actually overwhelming support for the Green New Deal. Over 80% of Americans want us to invest um, in green energy. They want us to guarantee good union-paying jobs. Um, So it's Less of a controversy of what the people want and more of what the political will is to implement something like a Green New Deal. And that's exactly where Sunrise and the youth comes in to demand these solutions that our generation so desperately needs. Because it sounds good to me. Jobs, people who Mm -hmm. historically are working families, people of color who've been ignored for many years would get those jobs and be able to make life-sustaining wages, Mm -hmm. but it costs a lot of money and people are saying, well, it's not that important right now. Any comments from you guys on this? Well, part of the issue is that people have taken bits and pieces of this proposal and this policy concept and demonized it. And it's the same entities that have historically done things for their own financial benefit. And I think as as, um, Mark was saying, we can take and change the conversation and realize and make me mm-hmm. realize the economic impact. Um, I'm, I saw a documentary regarding recycling and called Plastic China, which I think is, it was revolutionary. It changed my whole thought process regarding plastic and how we are basically killing the world's waterways, the base of the world with plastic. Um, but when you let people know that if we just change our behaviors in reference to how we recycle and do it properly, making sure things are empty, clean, and dry, the economic impact that's going to have on the city in reference to us putting um, waste in the tip, um, tipping fees that we have or in reference to landfills. That's an economic impact that will reduce the money we spend in the general fund on waste. And yeah. so when you make that connection, that just by you doing a little small change in behavior and just how you do recycling and other things, that's going to have an economic impact. So we can have more dollars for our recreation centers, our parks, our police, our fire, all the, and also all the quality of life issues that we want. But when you have to make that yeah. economic connection, and then it becomes real for people. Yeah, and I will say that I started having a recycle bin in my bathroom for all those lotion and face care bottles that right. you normally would just put in the regular trash. But that's a whole, all those are recyclable materials that you re- clean them out first. You got to clean them out and <laughs> empty, clean, and dry. Empty, clean, because, and dry. And I take the labels off too. So, right. and, and I want to go and kind of, because you touched upon this a little bit when you talked about communities of color and poor communities are the ones that feel the brunt of this. Could you go into that? They're the ones who are going to get displaced. You got the issue of immigration because uh, floods and whole community, like all kinds of stuff happening. Sure. And we're already seeing this, I think, of impacted communities in South Philly. Um, Philadelphia is home to the largest oil refinery on the East Coast. Um, And South Philadelphians have one of the highest asthma rates in the country. Um, And that's a direct connection between 
fossil fuel industry continuing to burn um, and refine oil when we know we have to move away from fossil fuels and then Philadelphians um, not having access to clean or healthy air to breathe. Um, and we don't have to wait for that impact. That's already here and we're already seeing that right in our backyards. And yeah. A, a big part of this, you know, the rhetorical challenge, the leadership challenge, how do you message these, these ideas? A big part of that challenge, every single case when we're talking about, whether we're talking about Joe Biden's inching it up to maybe a $2 billion plan to Governor Inslee's, you know, $9 billion plan up to 19 but these plans and how much they would cost are stacked up against hundreds of trillions of dollars in damage if we don't. And right. that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that where it's 10 times more costly to do nothing than it is to do any of the things that we that are being proposed by various candidates. And I got to say a lot of people feel kind of um a little hopeless on the federal level, but locally, councilmen, I mean, what can we do as we continue to work to push on the federal level, what can local governments do, state governments do, to put a, to try to get some of the things that the Green New Deal would want to be impacted here? Well, I've been looking at a number of different ideas. I think one of the things that people don't realize is that largest, um, the biggest impact in reference to emissions from a nitrogen noxious oxide or nitrogen oxide or carbon dioxide is based in buildings. So commercial buildings, residential buildings, that's where we use a lot of energy. So the electricity we're mm. using in this in this room for all the gadgets, the Internet of Things that's coming, a lot of that comes from fossil fuels. So how can we change the dynamic? One, make our homes more sustainable, and especially for people who have moderate to low income. You know, we yeah. have a 26% poverty rate. So I've been working on some ideas and how we can use some dollars that come into the general fund to make it easier and make it more accessible for people who are moderate low income to have a more sustainable um, home so they're not using so much energy and reduce that. And on the other side, I've been a strong proponent of the Philadelphia Energy Authority when we created that to provide solar, the whole Solarized Philadelphia Initiative, mm-hmm. which was something we started a couple of years ago to put more and more solar um, panels on people's homes. The cost of solar has come down dramatically. Yes. We have to offset that. So if you can find ways to have people use less um, fossil fuels by putting solar panels on their homes and also make sure their homes are more sustainable, that's going to reduce the uh, carbon dioxide emissions that go into our atmosphere. Yeah. Are there other ways that we can get, because the thing is, it's it's not always, it takes a little time when you talk about recycling, clean and dry, right? It takes a little bit of time. It takes, sometimes it takes money to choose the more energy efficient version. Are there other things like incentives people can implement to make it so that all of us get on board because this isn't something that 10% or 20% of society can do. This this only works if we all get on board. Am I right, Mark? No, that's right. And I think that's why uh, what um, what are often called intermediaries or yeah. third space or civil society type entities, churches, faith-based organizations of all types, mm. uh, schools, uh, all kinds of voluntary and other kinds of associations, block happens with block happens within the city system, the rec department, you know, all of rebuild, all of these ways that individuals collect into larger groups that can leverage bigger change are absolutely necessary because, you know, human beings are wired to think about the present. They are wired to think about, okay, I did recycling, so now I don't have to do solar. They want one solution so they can stop thinking and they can relax. That's how we survived. That's how we uh, Mm -hmm. evolved is that we think about the present, not the future. 
And one of the best ways to build the future into what we're doing every day yeah. is a group, is to do things together and collectively so that we're reinforcing each other. So how do we make this a priority? Because right now, um, you know, when I interviewed Jay Ensley at the Call to the Bar, he says that climate change and environment is the number one issue for 2020. But I don't necessarily hear climate change being in the top five. How do we make it so? Mm, Yeah, well, I think the great thing about the Green New Deal is that it's more than a climate policy. Mm. It has a jobs guarantee to it. It has an element of housing, fair and just housing into it and affordable health care because we know that the climate crisis is so much more than kind of cliche environmental factors, but it's actually going to exacerbate everyone's ability to, to live their lives and to have their basements not flood every year with these terrible storms. Um, As one example. So I think that if we expand our vision beyond just climate and more of an environmental justice um, framework of thinking about what we do next, um, almost every issue falls under the Green New Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Any anything? I think um, Mark was right that I I, I, it has been very difficult for those of us who've been concerned about climate for a long time to mobilize um, uh, opinion. And part of that is because we're wired to be worried about the, the, the tiger jumping out of the, mm-hmm. out of the, rather than the, uh, the, 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 rather than the boiling water and the frog, as, as, as in uh, yeah. Vice President Gore's uh, 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 slideshow. Um, and uh, so I think that group actions to really electrify particularly in the city, yeah. the transportation sector, the homes. Um, uh, Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, for instance, put in yeah. uh, ground source geothermal, which is efficiency. And that's the idea behind the uh, energy authority to say, okay, let's, let's leverage the borrowing of, of the city and help those who are disadvantaged, putting in white roofs, um, putting in solar and having the city finance it and then yeah. Pay for it out of out of a revolving fund. So there are actually a lot of ways you can you can do this, but there isn't a silver bullet. There are like like a thousand different policy mechanisms you can use. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I want to ask you because you just came off an election, uh, Councilman. I mean, is this sexy enough to get people to vote for somebody? I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, if we're talking 2020, like, and we're talking next big elections. Is climate change is Environmental justice, jobs, all this stuff, sexy enough to get a vote. Well, from my perspective, I think you have to change the paradigm. And I think if you talk, if you look at the city of Philadelphia, we are the largest, biggest, big city with the highest level of poverty, 26%. So when we came out with the Philadelphia Energy Authority and the Solarized Philly, we thought we would just get a few people to sign up. Within the first couple of months, we had 500 people sign up. I think part of that was we were educating people on how you can reduce your energy mm. costs and mm. reduce the amount of money you're spending on your utility bill. That's connected to poverty. So I think if you lead with poverty and then you also talk about we're now going to try to make your home more sustainable, as opposed to using the word sustainability, if the words have meaning, we're going to make it cheaper. I don't even think people know what that means. Right, we're going to make it cheap as opposed to saying we're going to make your home more sustainable. We're going to make it easier for for you to keep your home warm without you paying more money. Yeah. That is going to click with people. When they find out like, so you're saying you're going to do things to make my home not as expensive to heat. So... That's going to save me money. How do I sign up? How do and I? Sign that's up? the way that's you make the connection. It. Nicole, do you think young people? I mean, you're studying. These are folks getting tooled up for this next big wave because this is going to be our future. 
we've just grown up seeing these impacts. Like we've grown up with these storms and we've grown up with these fires. And so it's just been our reality all along. So I think that young people, we're the first generation that really understands this as a crisis. We are ready to demand solutions. And we, I think the role that young people have always played in movements is that we unapologetically demand the solutions that we need. And then we see the political um, and economic will kind of follow from there. So young people have been demanding the solutions, will continue to demand the solutions like the Green New Deal. Um, and we'll see we'll see the shift from there. So any advice to folks who say, you know what, like I hear this, Cherry, I'm scared now or whatever. Like what thing can I do? And just, you know, give me a quick, you know, 10 seconds where they could do this, this and this. What do you think they could do? Well, I think the, best, the first thing they can do is change their behavior. I mean, when you start to change your behavior, those ways you can do it in a small way, your own personal way. A good friend of mine, he used to be the president of the Urban League of Philadelphia, he used to say, how do you eat elephant one bite at a time? So if you start to change your behavior, other people see that and it'll have a ripple effect across the city, the state, and our nation. Yeah, yeah. For me, it is the most important thing people can do is vote their interests. Yeah. They've got to vote. There are a lot of things when you make your next purchasing decision, buy a an electric vehicle or a hybrid electric, use electric heat. I mean, there are a lot of things you can do. Think about climate change when you are making an investment in, in something in your home, in your car. Think about it all the time. And so because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. Should climate change be a top priority for 2020? And if so, how do we make it that number one priority? This should be an issue. I think all the leading candidates are all talking about climate change. Uh, If you go back uh, four years ago or even eight years ago, candidates were not taking the same type of level of emphasis that they are doing now. So, yes, it is an issue. I think all the candidates are talking about that and holding people accountable to make sure we move forward. All right. Absolutely, yes. A guy named Amory Lovin said, nobody cares about energy. They care about hot showers and cold beers. Right. And the same thing about climate change. We got to message this where people are. Yes. Absolutely. Last word. Yes. Climate change is the leading issue in 2020. And one way that we can see this through is by electing politicians who agree to not take money from the fossil fuel industry um, and who agree to make the Green New Deal a day one priority. To Nicole Karsh, thank you to Robert McKinstry. Thank you to Dr. Mark Hughes. And thank you to Councilman at Large Derek Green for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. No problem. Thank you. Next up, this Philadelphia dad raised his son from behind bars. I raised him from the telephone. He spent decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets folks hot under the collar is wrongful conviction. And one Philadelphia man has made headlines in recent weeks. Terrence Lewis was just 17 when he was sentenced to mandatory life without parole for a 1996 robbery murder. From the beginning, he maintained his innocence. Then last month, Lewis relinquished his innocence claim so he could be resentenced under the U.S. Supreme Court juvenile lifer precedent. And surprise, surprise. He was exonerated and set free. He's here in the studio along with part of his legal team, Kevin Harden and Shari Maynard. Welcome to Flashpoint, everybody. Terrence, I have to start with you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. What was it like finding out that you were going to get out that day when I don't think that that was what you anticipated? 
No, none of us actually anticipated it. Was um, it was shocking. Judge McDermott, she chose to take it a step further and make sure that justice be done that day. I was mind blown. I was mind blown. I was humble. It, it was a major impact. It was a major impact um towards my life, and I'm grateful to this day. I'm still wrapping my head around it. I can't stop smiling. And how many days have you been free so far? I haven't even been counting. I don't have to um, count calendar days no more. So yeah. I, I, I put that behind me. i just been living each day in the moment. I haven't really got any sleep yet. Do you wake up at night and wonder where you are? or Absolutely. do you? Every night since I've been home, I wake up and I just sit there and shake my head. Like I'm really free. I'm really free. I'm mind blown. Kevin, this has been a long fight. For for Terrence over here, 21 years, explain the legal basis and were you expecting this? We weren't expecting it at all. The legal basis and the reason that it was so surprising was that we had to make a, a conscious decision to withdraw Terrence's innocence claims because the Philadelphia courts have decided that mm-hmm. if an individual has an innocence claim, that they can't proceed with their juvenile life or resentencing pursuant to the United States Supreme Court rulings. We had come up with a strategy that would have probably resulted in Terrence fighting for his exoneration four or five years from now, hoping that he would get an offer and a judge who would sentence him that would allow him to be out by his 41st birthday. So the legal basis was the legal basis that we had been pressing all along. The thing was that day when we presented Terrence to the court, we were not pressing those issues. And the court did a really good job of analyzing our submission. We maintained our innocence in our resentencing submission, which put Terrence at danger of being sentenced to a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had the opinion of Judge Wells from the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania that laid out why she thought he was innocent. And it took us all, I mean, we sat at the council table just like this. Dave walks up and says, the judge wants to let him out. But we sat there and we literally, we were just like, wow. And that smile erupted (laughs) on your face, Terrence, (laughs) and didn't stop. At all. You had been saying from day one, I'm innocent of this. I did not do this. Then you had to like make a strategic decision, trust Kevin, trust the crew, and, and, and relinquish that. And what was going through your mind and you just said, what, I just want to get out? What was your thought? I always maintained my innocence. It was. It came to the point where, unfortunately for me, the state of Pennsylvania or the county of Philadelphia, they was making me choose. I was on the fence with it because I knew that under no circumstances could I ex- accept responsibility. And a judge who I was going before, that's what she wanted to hear. One of the prongs in yes, her to yes. accept that agreed-upon sentence that me and the Commonwealth agreed upon, I had to accept responsibility, show some type of remorse. So an innocent man, like, how do how do I quantify or how do I begin to express remorse? Now, granted, my moral disposition, I definitely um, – Felt bad that someone actually lost, you know, mm-hmm. a life, and that mm-hmm. my name was actually attached to that, you know, um, wrongfully or mistakenly, whatever the case. But you know, I, like I said, I was on the fence and accepting um, the twenty, the twenty to life. But I knew for a fact, considering that I had Dave Leger and Shari and Kev, I was in good hands. They yeah. showed me that through their actions since they've been on my case. And I gotta ask, twenty-one, the family of the victim in this case, yes, supported. Absolutely. You. They supported my release. McDermott, and I thank her so much 
like I said, and I say it over and over again, she's she's elite in light of that bench um, as far as being a jurist. Um, she, asked, she looked at me and she said, here's your chance now to um, speak or address the victim's family. And I, I did just that. I turned to him. I looked him in his eyes and um, I expressed it, you know, um, how um, sympathetic I was and um, showing empathy, you know what I mean, to him losing a loved one. But under no circumstances, I told him that I had um, participated in this robbery, which led to a murder of his brother. He looked at me in my eyes. He, we, we stared at each other for a moment. He wanted, I guess, to gauge the sincerity and how genuine I was. And he said, you know what? I believe. I believe. And then he addressed the judge. Judge McDermott said, I support his release. Let that man go. How did you feel hearing this man say this? I cried. I ain't even going to lie to you. I shed a tear. I was, um, it was like I was vindicated upon my vindication, if that makes sense. I was... Yeah, double the vindication was it was compounded. I was grateful that um, because I didn't want him to walk away thinking that um perhaps we duped the system or anything like that. I wanted him to know that honestly that the the state that the um city they had the wrong individual. Yeah, they had the wrong individual. And he be- needed to know that too. And believe I'm shocked that this keeps happening. You know, I've covered so many. I remember in a 10-month period, four people were released because of wrongful convictions in a 10-month. And since then, and this was before, this was under Williams. So since then, we've had release after release after release. And so, Shari, I want to ask you, like, the evidence here. What what evidence mm-hmm. was presented that was exculpatory to a point where the judge said, you know what, we're going to throw this out? One of the most important pieces of evidence would have been, you know, uh, witnesses who came forward and who vouched for the fact that Terrence was not in that location that night. On top of that, we had a witness who had shown herself not to be credible. So those pieces of evidence, in addition to a few others, compounded to convince the judge and that gave us ammunition to draft the pleadings on his behalf. And so all of this sort of culminated in you being set free on a day when you thought you were just going to be resentenced. Yeah. And I want you to talk about, because one of the things that I don't think people really understand, they're starting to understand now what you lose when through wrongful conviction. What was it like those 21 years, starting out as a 17-year-old boy, Doing 21 years, it, I'm, it like damaged me, you know, um, for lack of better terms. Like it, it, it wore down on my soul, you know, um, being innocent. And then, mind you, everybody where they had um, placed me claimed innocent. So the staff there, you know, they was um, they they was more standoffish because I always stood my ground and um, professing my innocence. And when certain programs used to come up and, you know, they asked you, all right, tell us um, the version of the crime and so on and so forth. I could not, you know, share with them the version of the crime because I myself, you know, um, did not know exactly what took place. So I would explain to them, to them that I'm innocent. Everybody looked at me, you know, um, like I had horns growing out of my head, whether it was the inmates or whether it was staff themselves. So just living through that alone, you know, um, that journey alone, I, I, at one point in time, I was um, I was hapless, I was hopeless, um, 
it, it was dark for a second, you know, because like I said, um, I didn't know whether or not that I would die in jail, you know. I didn't know whether or not I would die in jail. That was my reality. Because after, after the first two years, I thought it would be rectified, it would be corrected. That wasn't the case. Then four years, turned, two years turned to four, and then four turned to six, six turned to eight, eight turned to 12. And I'm looking up, I'm knocking on 16, 17. So I actually, um, it wasn't until Dave Leger and the rest of the team came in my life to start giving me hope again. But prior to them coming, I still, at every turn, I put my best foot forward, and I was cracking, I was chipping the wall away. You know, yeah. A lot of my um, litigation, you know what I mean, was pro se. But like I said, it wasn't until my team came on board and I had um, a chance to exhale. Yeah. First time. Yeah. And that was like in 2009. I began to really like. So that's 10 years. So the past 10 years you've been pushing. And yeah. you're a dad. I'm a dad. Yes. Yes. Your um, son was just a month old. He's just a month old. I'm proud of him, too. I actually had to. Um, I raised him. From the telephone, oh, I raised them from Snell Mill because where they placed me at for um, most of my time was all the way out on the western side of Pennsylvania. And it was more so a hardship on his mother, her being a single parent and me being taken away. Finances coming from, you know, the inner cities, we didn't have much. We, we tried to um, scrape the coins together. You know, I was working prior to me being incarcerated. But um, I'm proud of him. I raised him from here. He goes to um he's on he's on leave right now, but he attends Bloomberg um University. He also studying criminal justice. He he working two jobs. He got a nighttime shift and he working part time at Foot Locker. Good kid. Good kid. Good, good, good kid. kid. Absolutely proud of him. And and I mean, Kevin, you're a you're a proud father mm-hmm. of a of a young daughter. Yes, I am. And when you think about like a dad being separated from his child for decades and then now he's free and they're able to reunite, have your first father's day free as a free man. How does that make you feel as a person who helped make this happen? It is the coolest feeling ever. I mean, you know, I, I had a very, I was raised by a single dad. You know, my dad died when I was in law school. My dad would have thought that this was the coolest thing ever. Me putting a man, and not just not just uh, Terrence and Zahara back together, but Terrence's dad has yeah. been present. You know, he flew in from Arkansas. I was the one who prepped him for his testimony, yeah. uh, and seeing his nervousness, like seeing his father's nervousness, when I was prepping him to testify for the judge for the sentencing, trying to help him understand that you know we're not going to press the innocence too far. And he's like, "But my son is innocent," and see and seeing the pride that he had in his in his son. So for me to have the opportunity, mm. you know, I think it, it, it personally it was probably the highest tribute I could pay to my dad because my dad would have moved mountains. And that's what he did when he was alive. He would have moved mountains for his children. So mm-hmm. it's probably the best tribute. Like just having that picture of Terrence embracing Zahair on the front page of the yes. like that, that, you know, that gave me an opportunity to really um, just take it all in. I still haven't taking it all in. But I, I mean, there's just no other thing. My dad would have walked around the neighborhood with that paper. He would still have it. He probably had a, he probably would have had a t-shirt. t-shirt he had a t-shirt made. Yeah. Terrence Lewis is free. My dad would have had a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and, and your son is doing well. And so you are now going to be going to school too. Absolutely. Um, I'm definitely uh, my intentions and the plans I'm putting it together right now in this 
coming fall, this school, this coming school semester, I'm definitely going to enroll in college. Absolutely. I'm going to further my education as I should. Right. That's right. And yeah, you mentioned right. law school, maybe? Absolutely. You probably uh, got some mentors yeah, right here. I do. Yep. Actually, on our way here, um, <laughs> I was picking a brain now, asking them to sincerely advise me. And they both actually um, advised me sincerely from their chest, from their heart to mind. And um, told them not to take out any student loans. Yeah. <laughs> I think you could get some scholarships. Yeah, we, oh, we, that's I, what we, I think oh, you yeah. could get some scholarships. And I, and, and I have to point out, one of the things that I constantly mention is the lack of a statutory compensation for individuals like Terrence who are wrongfully convicted. Other states have it, but we don't have it in Pennsylvania. So people think that when they get out automatically, there's a check coming, there's this coming, or that there's help. Well, Terrence's GoFundMe actually highlights the fact that Kansas pays $65,000 per year to exonerees. Mm-hmm. And had Terrence been, been resentenced as a juvenile lifer, there would have been a plethora of uh, opportunities for him, housing, education, things to make sure that he didn't fall off. Uh, but he has to, since he's free and he's innocent, he, he doesn't get those the benefit of those doubts. So um, we, 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 we put a couple of our, uh, our our prayer warriors on that on that topic to see if they could try to build some reform around that, especially mm-hmm. given the the number of exonerations we've had out of the Philadelphia District Attorney's office. It's insane. Over the last, it's, it's like they shook bed bugs. You know, you know, you, or they opened the closet and all the skeletons fell out. The person that's most likely to be railroaded by the criminal justice system is going to be someone who doesn't have the resources. You know, those are the people who, who, who have these problems. So for that person to then be exonerated and then let loose out into the streets, you know, with a token and a... And a, and a and There's a, stuff in a trash bag. Yeah. These are anti-poverty bills that we really need to, to get in front of uh, the governor for a signature should they be introduced. And so I want to please, I, I will share the link to the GoFundMe. Just your final words. Like, I mean, th- this is the beginning for you. Absolutely. And I'm going to take one day at a time. I'm going to continue to embrace, you know, um, all the love that, you know, has been given to me. Um, I appreciate everybody welcoming me, befriending me, showing me the love. I said, I'm going to put my best foot forward and I'm, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. And I, I, my intentions is to, like I said, further my education so that I can take what has happened to me and use as a, use as a catalyst to bring about a meaningful you know, change and reform. Um, so that's exactly what I'm going to do because there are others who I have just left recently, last week, who are similarly situated. So it's not just restricted and exclusive to me. There are other other individuals who I share their pain, they share my pain, and um, they showed me, you know, their transcripts of why they're innocent and is identical, you know what I mean, so to say, to mine. So we definitely got to fight before us in regards to bringing about um, a change to change these um, draconian statues and these um, these barbaric policies. Congratulations Thank to you, you and to your entire legal team. Thank you so much to Terrence Lewis, to Kevin Harden, and to Shari Maynard for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, it's a historic celebration of freedom. Show the world our successes. The annual event that marks the end of slavery comes to West Philadelphia. We'll be right back. KYW Original Podcasts. 
Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to download the Flashpoint podcast through the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. We here at KYW, we are all about community. And on June 22nd, the Pennsylvania Juneteenth Initiative will bring thousands together here in Philadelphia to celebrate the anniversary of the end of slavery. Both local and national celebrities, they'll be present for the day-long Emancipation Day festivities. Here to tell us more about the Juneteenth Festival and Parade is Parade producer Sunny King. Sunny, welcome to Flashpoint. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's break it down. Before we yes. go into the parade, yes. give people an understanding of why we celebrate Juneteenth. Well, Juneteenth is the official date when we were no longer slaves. So it dates back June 19th, 1865, Galveston, Texas. Mm. There were still slaves and they didn't know that we had been free for two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So we consider Juneteenth the African-American Independence Day, if you will. Yeah, and just to be clear, the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect in 1863. Yes. But so it took two, two and years. a half years. People were still working Work- on plantations right. with no idea. That's right. And so why did it become an actual celebration to where now, all these years later, we're, we're going to be having a big parade in Philly? Well, now is the time for us to support black businesses, to mm. showcase black businesses. It's an opportunity for black businesses to make money and to show the world our successes, what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what better way than to take Juneteenth and make it a big celebration so that the world can see that there are successes in the African-American community. Wonderful. And so is this a new thing with this, this the, particular organization? This is the fourth annual year that mm-hmm. we've done it. Usually it was downtown. This year we decided to move it to 52nd Street. Why move it to West Philly? We moved it to 52nd Street so that the businesses can, that we needed an economic boom. So we brought it to 52nd Street in the community where the businesses can thrive in that area. Like that's where the black businesses have thrived for years in on 52nd Street in West Philadelphia. So that was the best area to bring it to. There's a black business corridor there. So we have about 100 vendors and all the black businesses in that area will be there vending and selling and, and, and making money. OK, so tell me about this parade. We have different elements to the parade. So we open up with an honor the ancestors breakfast, what's going to be happening at 52nd and Jefferson at the shopping center. We have the mayor. We have Councilwoman Janie Blackwell. They'll be there to just kind of start it off and give us some positive energy. Um, then we st- kick off the parade at 12 o'clock. It pulls off from 52nd and Jefferson, goes all the way down 52nd Street down to Malcolm X Park. So the vendors will be there starting at 12. So anyone can go down to the park and go buy things from the vendors. The parade doesn't end till 3, and then we kick off our festival at 3 o'clock. So we have a name ceremony. I'm not sure if you know, but 52nd Street has been renamed Muhammad Ali Way. Wow. So there'll be a ceremony for the changing of the name. And then we have Kindred the Family Souls performing at 7 o'clock on the big stage right in front of Malcolm X Park. A day full of festivities. A day full of festivities. And we are celebrating this year the 400th anniversary Mm -hmm. of the arrival of the first African people who were enslaved in America. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's like the perfect time to to think about the Freedom Day Mm -hmm. and and given the fact that, you know, this is such a significant year. Mm -hmm. 
We got a slew of people. So we have 10 major floats this mm-hmm. year. We decided to kind of theme our floats out. So we have an HBCU float. We actually have Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln University coming. Um, we have loads of dance teams, drill teams. We have schools. We have nonprofits. We have businesses, alumni chapters from Cheney and Lincoln. We have Greeks coming. I mean, it's going to be jam packed. Um, and behind each major float, we have at least 10 to 20 performances. So is this like so. everybody? Everybody, as they say. <laughs> everybody is coming. Everybody. Everybody is coming. Yes. So is it too late for people to so to sign up and be vendors? Well, I mean, we're, we're at capacity with the vendors. So we really? have 100 vendors. We have room for 100. We've, we already have. We capped out at 100. Um, and we and have, what about food? We have food vendors. We like have food trucks and stuff. Food yeah. trucks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we have the, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have over 2,000 participants in the parade. And so this is a family fun event and it's for Absolutely. everybody, correct? Absolutely. This is a family friendly event. We want everyone to come out. We want our children to come out and see what black excellence looks like. We want them to come see. We want them to stand and, and watch the parade. If they're, we, You can come right outside your house in a residential area and watch and literally watch this parade go down mm-hmm. 52nd Street. So this is for family, yes. And so, so people bring lawn chairs and yes. post up. Like, yes. I mean, should you just post up yes. and, and get not, yourself a snack? And I'm just... not sure if you're familiar with the parade, the Bud Billiken parade that happens in Chicago every year. It's the largest parade apparently in the united states it's a black parade but mm-hmm. that's, you know is we're we're modeling after that yes bring your lawn chairs take your lawn chairs bring them outside sit on the sidewalk and watch this parade go down the street that sounds like fun that's fun and right? so you could just post up you all day up. watch the beauty walk down the street that's and right. celebrate freedom day that's right just come right on outside yeah and this is all because you can catch a train down there. You can take the L. I'm sure there's plenty of buses. SEPTA has been very helpful in mm-hmm. rerouting buses and making sure buses get to the top and the end of the parade. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 easily accessible. And so how do you feel being a part of this as a young person yeah. celebrating history yeah. and bringing all these people together? It's like a milestone for me. Like, this is awesome. I mean, to be able to produce a parade and have over 2,000 participants. And for me, what I always say, you can never be what you can't see. So my biggest thing is I really want the kids to say, who is that? Oh, my gosh, that's Miss Lincoln. What is that? How can I be Miss Lincoln University? You know, so we're giving opportunities for people to see the things that they can be. I want them to see black excellence. And that's really been like a joy for me. Wow. And so where can people get more information? www.juneteenthphilly.org. So you can go onto the website. It gives you the schedule. It outlines everything that's happening. And just come on out. Come see us. Come come party with us and celebrate Juneteenth. Bring your whole family. That's Grandma, right. all the Grandma, kids. Grandma, cousins, auntie, <laughs> uncle. Everybody. Everybody. Come on out. Check them out. Juneteenth Philly. Absolutely wonderful. So Sunny King. Thank you so much for Thank coming you for on having and, me. and being on Flashpoint. Talk about this issue in the news. Juneteenth! Yes, Juneteenth! That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Desmond Tutu, former Archbishop of Cape Town, once said, 25 years ago, people could be excused for not knowing much or doing much about climate change. Today, We have no excuse. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.